Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gunn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly, tensions between the U.S. and the E.U. heighten with the likelihood of higher U.S. tariffs on European wine, whiskey, and cheese. The success of the New Zealand wine industry continues as demand for the country's wine grows. Global warming in Burgundy. Study shows the last 30 years have seen consistently warmer temperatures than the previous 600. Notorious spirits absent given PGI status in France. And from the Institute of Masters of Wine, eight new MWs have been announced. And as ever, our Wine of the Week. So, as we do, a little recap first of our week in wine. What were we up to, Matthew? Well, for the first time in my life, I went to Mill Valley, a very um, upmarket town in Marin County, just outside San Francisco, and visited a, a very nice wine shop and bar there called West Coast Wine and Cheese. That's right. We went there because they were celebrating uh, Washington Wine Month, and they had a interesting tasting with Gramercy Cellars. Yes, they only sell California, Oregon, and Washington wine. Hence the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And the owner, Chris... Um, has actually lived and worked in Washington, Oregon, and California, so really knows um, the West Coast. And it was fun to taste the Gramercy wines, uh, made by a master sommelier, Greg Harrington. And we tasted Mourvedre, Syrah, and Cabernet Sauvignon, which was your favourite, Katie? I have to say the Mourvedre. I agree. I was quite impressed by the Cabernet Sauvignon, and neither of us is that big a fan of Cabernet. We don't drink it that often, but it was very, very good, but the Mourvedre just stood out. Anyway, showed off the varietal character uh, very well and was paired with some great cheeses and a roulette as well. The duck roulette. That was a favorite. That was delicious. So that's our recommendation. Go check it out. West Coast Wine and Cheese. They have an outlet in San Francisco and also Mill Valley. And now on with the news. Ever since Donald Trump's election as U.S. president, tariffs have been a subject of great debate and controversy, straining relations between the U.S., the EU, and China. Things may escalate further still. This week, the World Trade Organization is expected to find the EU several billion dollars for providing subsidies to Airbus, which favored the company over Boeing. Somewhat strangely, the U.S. may recoup some of the fine by raising tariffs on wine, whiskey, and cheese. This comes as, once again, Trump threatened to raise tariffs on French wine. These developments will hit European producers, but also U.S. consumers, who will see either less availability or more expensive European products. So, Matthew, the way I understand this is that the World Trade Organization is fining the EU and then to reimburse the U.S., essentially. Is that correct? I believe so. And the U.S. can choose how to um, raise this money. And one option that they're pursuing is to raise the tariffs on wine, whiskey and cheese coming in from the EU, which obviously will have a huge impact on those industries, not just in um, Europe, with their exports, but also domestically, with importers having to charge higher prices for these very popular products. Well, I guess this is one of the effects of having a teetotaler as a president. Doesn't bode well for the wine and drinks industry. No, and Trump's been consistent in his threats to raise tariffs on French wine, though he's not actually done it. Uh, One of the problems with Trump is very unpredictable, so you don't know if he's blustering or actually going to do it for real. But certainly, if uh, French wine became more expensive 
in the US, it would have a huge impact because it is the biggest wine producer in the world. And it's not easy just to switch from French wine to California wine because it's very, two very different styles. Well, I did see in the articles we read on this topic that the whether they be a wine producer or cheese producer in the EU, they have to watch Twitter on the daily to see if there are any changes in US policy. Yeah, that drives you crazy. If you start following Trump on Twitter, you don't know where your mind's going to be. Or your next shipment. And from the Southern Hemisphere. So as we reported a few weeks ago, the New Zealand wine industry continues to grow. It was reported this week that global sales in 2018 of New Zealand wine increased by 6% to a total of 7 billion NZ dollars. It's a remarkable success story for such a small country, and it's been based on making quality premium wine rather than volume. In its major export markets, New Zealand is either the highest or second highest priced category. But their success not only lies in their focus on premium wine production, but also in sustainability. Uh, especially with the New Zealand wine growers, uh, they are very focused on ensuring that all of their members are interested or at least practicing sustainability to a certain extent, uh, to the point that they actually ask all of their members to register their wines under a sustainable registry. And that allows all these wineries to participate in their events around the world. And two of which are being hosted this month uh, in San Francisco, New York, and there's a third in Toronto, and we'll be attending the one in San Francisco, won't we, Matthew? We will indeed, and there's actually a a seminar dedicated to this issue of sustainability and talking about how um, New Zealand wine makers uh, practice sustainability and how that is enforced and monitored, so it should be really uh, fascinating. And I think uh, this uh, focus on sustainability isn't just a gimmick. New Zealand's very uh, proud of its sustainable culture. For instance, for instance, the South Island is powered solely by water. So it's a really integral part of their identity. Well, it is a beautiful country, and I'm really glad to know that they're taking these steps to protect it. May the rest of the world follow. Regular listeners of Wind Up Weekly will know that we keep returning to the subject of climate change. And that's because regions across the world continue to report on rising temperatures. The latest evidence comes from Burgundy. A report from the University of Leipzig has looked at temperature data from 1354 up until 2018 and found that the last 31 years have seen consistently higher temperatures. The report also found that in the past, warm, dry years were outliers, occurring every 10 to 15 years. But since the heatwave of 2003, these outliers have become the norm. So this is further evidence that um, wine regions are getting warmer, especially the traditional European regions. And this is really going to change how we uh, think about these regions and what the wines taste like. And everything that we've kind of seen as uh, recognised and understood is going to change. Well, yes. And in the case of Bordeaux, we're seeing that in the introduction of new grape varieties. But Bordeaux has always been a blending region, uh, known for that. And, but Burgundy has been known for its single varietal wines, Pinot Noir Chardonnay, with a little bit of Aligote here and there and Gamay if you really look for it. But 
with these changing temperatures, they're obviously going to have to do something, right? And so so that will change the essence of Burgundy totally if they're no longer defined by Pinot Noir, a cool climate grape. Yeah, and Aligote seems to be being planted more in Burgundy because it's really high acidity is now more suited to warmer conditions in Burgundy. So there's some interesting Aligote coming out. But one... Um, aspect which we may have to reconsider is the nature of uh, the Lydie, the Premier Crew and Grand Crew, because they've always been very well established, but now those sites may actually produce different styles of wine. And one thing that really um, defined Premier Crew and Grand Crew is that they can consistently make good, great wine in, in different years. But now, if every year is a, a good one or a warm one, then they may not be so distinctive. Especially if there are different grape varieties involved. <laughs> This week saw the announcement of eight new masters of wine, taking the total number in the world to 390. The new MWs are based in the UK, Finland, Germany, China and California. That two of them are based in China, though they're not actually Chinese, while the California MW is Chinese, demonstrates the increasing importance of the Chinese market. In fact, Katie, we both know Gus Zhu, who lives in Napa, well. You worked a harvest with him at Cape Bread Cellars. That's right. And he was a great partner in crime when it came to our harvest intern days. And I remember not knowing that he was so deep into the WSET that he had his diploma until well into the harvest. Uh, It was actually over the sorting table that we had a deep conversation about education and how he got through the diploma and his interest in bringing education uh, to the Chinese market as well. Right. So he's definitely uh, continued that with his uh, receiving the MW. And he is a wine educator and extremely knowledgeable about wine. Yes, and he did his research paper, which is the final stage of the MW uh, program, on the impact of acidity adjustments on the sensory perception of a Californian Chardonnay, which I thought was extremely pertinent and interesting. So I hope to get my hands on his paper so I can read what the outcome was. So congrats to our friend Gus and the other seven new MWs. Now, absinthe, a drink with a notorious reputation, although one that isn't entirely deserved. Banned for much of the 20th century for its deleterious and supposedly hallucinogenic effects, the spirit is once again legal and undergoing a revival, which is underscored by being granted PGI status by the EU. PGI stands for Protected Geographical Indication, and it's a term often found on wine labels to designate a wine from a specific wine region, but without the strict laws of an appellation. The PGI has been awarded to the French village of Pantalier, near the Swiss border. The rules state that the drink must have at least 45% ABV, contain wormwood, consist of at least 20 milligrams per liter of thujone, a compound which comes from wormwood and was supposed to cause these hallucinogenic effects, and it must louche, one of my favorite French terms. That is, that it turns from a pale color with a greenish tint to a cloudy, opaque appearance when water is added. And of course, because absinthe is so high in alcohol, you should always add water. Absolutely. And that's one thing that people just don't understand. And if you're drinking it straight, then it could very well have a hallucinogenic effect. And you may lose an ear. 
This is really exciting news because absinthe is a really fantastic drink when drunk properly, uh, mixing it with water, having that louche uh, turn in the colour, and just has that beautiful anise, floral, herbal element. It's a, a drink that's designed to be drunk slowly and intellectually rather than um, drinking at high volume and getting wasted. Well, and it's really unfair seeing as pastis has been very well accepted all throughout southern France and beyond, and it's pretty much the same concept. Well, yeah, pastis was created as an alternative to absinthe with much lower alcohol. So it's usually uh, below 40%, whereas absinthe is 45% and more. So the effects of drinking pastis are not as obvious as those of drinking absinthe. Well, if you just add a little more water and sip a little slower, then everything should turn out fine. And now for our wine of the week, which is one of our all-time favorite drinks, Matthew. Sherry. And one of the driest styles of sherry. Fino. So among my family and friends... Uh, I often have to hold my tongue because I hear that sherry in general, and fino in particular, is not one of their favorite styles of wine. It tends to be a little bit too... Sherry-like. I guess that's it. But that's what attracts me so much to this drink, and knowing how it's produced adds to the attraction. And yes, this is a very unusual sherry in the fact that the producer is actually based in California. And the, the label is Alexander Jules, and he makes wine in Santa Barbara. Uh, but he actually flies out to Sherry to select certain lots, certain barrels, to um, make his own wine and export back to California. So it's quite brave of him to do that. It's a financial commitment and um, for, a popu- for a style which is quite niche. So on the label here, Matthew, it says, selected from nine of a 65-barrel Solera. So to our listeners who don't know what a Solera is, could you just go ahead and uh, summarize that? Yeah, a Solera is a simple but quite sophisticated way of blending. So you have all these barrels, and basically when you take wine out of the barrel, you add some younger wine into it, and this creates a very consistent style, but it also means the wine remains fresh because it's got younger wine in it. And so this wine has been selected from nine of those uh, 65 barrels in the Solera system. And the um, Solera system he's buying this uh, wine from is Juan Piñero, who uh, started in the early 1990s. And the other wines that he has, the other sherries, uh, they come from different producers and all different styles, right? Yeah, he makes um, a Manzanilla and also a Montillado. And what's really interesting also about these wines is that each um, edition, if you like, is going to be different. So although the Solera system is designed to create consistency, if you're getting wine from different barrels each time, there's going to be a slightly different style. So it's almost like a vintage, and he does put the date of the bottling on the label. Well, definitely one to look at. Uh, What's the retail on this? It's about $30, and that's for a 500 milliliter bottle. Well worth the money. So that's it for this week's Wind Up Weekly. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gaunt. Join us next Monday for another wind-up. Cheerio!